0: Hey, this is Seth Scruggs, co-host of Rewatch. We're very excited to announce that we are going to be premiering a short film called Five Minutes. It was directed by me and it was produced and written by Zachary Vaughn. We shot it back in December and we're getting ready to release it on August 28th at 6pm. It will be premiering on YouTube as a live premiere. Uh, You can find all the information on Instagram at Productions. Following the premiere of the film, we are going to be hosting a live Q&A at 6.15, where we're going to talk about the film, and you can come out and ask us questions, and we'll be excited to answer them. August 28th at 6 p.m. with a Q&A following at 6.15, the premiere of Five Minutes, a short film by Seth Scruggs and Zachary Vaughn. Hi my name is Seth Scruggs and you're listening to rewatch a movie podcast about movies we love and movies we haven't seen yet in a second i'll be joined by my co-host zach fawn but before then make sure you go ahead and subscribe to this podcast so you won't miss a single episode we release a new episode every monday we hope that you'll join in on the fun and either watch or rewatch along with us all right now let's get to the show Hey, Zach. Hey, Seth. Oh, man. It's been two weeks. It has been, yeah. It's This is a very special double episode of Rewatch. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're also be...
1: known as a the recording messed up multiple times as we were trying to record the previous one, and so we decided to catch up all at once episode.
0: That That is exactly what this is. So we're going to be talking about not one, but two movies. One of them chosen by Zach, one of them chosen by me. Uh, that's what we're doing tonight. Uh, it's been, it's also been a crazy two weeks in that, uh, a lot has changed in the world, even, even more so than last time where we are in Tennessee, just announced a safer at home or a stay at home rather, uh, declaration for lack of a better word. Yeah. So for further notice, we are just, uh, chilling in our houses i guess
1: unless you work at a bank like me uh...
0: unless you are an essential worker which zach is an extremely essential worker Uh, i hope everyone is staying safe and healthy so hopefully we can brighten up some quarantine hours and talk about some movies so zach hit me with some facts about butch cassidy and the sundance kid
1: Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was released in 1969. It is directed by George Roy Hill, who also directed The Sting. Both of those movies star Paul Newman and Robert Redford. Um, In this, Paul Newman plays Butch Cassidy, and Robert Redford plays the Sundance Kid. The movie was written by the one and only William Goldman. You may know him you may not realize, but you may know him from The Princess Bride, if you are a Rob Reiner fan.
0: Or if you just like good movies.
1: Or if you just like good movies. <laughs> uh, this movie does have a the same uh, feel, I would say, as The Princess Bride, um, only as a buddy love western. Mm-hmm. Uh, a little Blake Snyder genre's in there. Um, but yeah. That's Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid at a very, very short summary.
0: <laughs> so it's worth noting before we jump into this entirely. We have actually talked about this movie. This is our third time now. Yep. Uh because of some technical issues. So if it feels like we're skipping over anything, I promise that it was not our intention to skip over anything. Uh we just uh forgot that we hadn't talked about it. So uh butch cassidy and the Sundance kid uh, i'll talk about my first impressions because i think i get to go first yes so uh this movie i feel like fits really well into this like 1960s style of filmmaking that was kind of becoming popular at the time uh it it reminded me a lot of bonnie and clyde if bonnie and clyde were two dudes Bonnie and Clyde, the 1967 Warren Beatty film, not the actual outlaws. Though, (laughs) I guess, I guess that would apply for them as well, too. But anyway, reminded me a lot of Bonnie and Clyde, reminded me a lot of The Graduate, uh, just in the way that it was edited. Uh, You know, the, the dialogue is quick. The actors are great. What, what are, what were your kind of impressions on a second time around?
1: Second time around. It's interesting because the first time I watched it, I wasn't as into it. Um, and after watching it a second time, I'm borderline obsessed with it. (laughs) Um, and I went from the polar opposites of not being a big fan to being a huge fan. Um. But I, I loved it. Um, we'll definitely cover this a lot in this part of the episode. Um, the writing is fantastic. Mm-hmm. William Goldman is a genius. He is the gold man standard ha, ha. for writing. Um, liter- uh, there are... Over and over again, people talk about Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid as the example for how to write a screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um we've mentioned before Aaron Sorkin's master class. Amen. He mentions he mentions the the screenplay as a must read, a must study. Yep. Um, Lou Hunter's screenwriting four thirty four book, he mentions Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid as a much must read, must much must read, must watch. Um, Lou Hunter, if you don't know, is the is a professor at UCLA uh where he tr- teaches the graduate program in screenwriting. Um so he's a bit of an expert in the field. He knows he knows
0: what he's talking about.
1: Yeah, I'd say. <laughs> um So yeah, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid is the go-to um the go-to screenplay for every great reason.
0: Good. Well, uh, let's jump into it then. And let's start there. Let's start by talking about the screenplay because it's good. It's, it's real really good. good. <laughs> uh, so there's a, lot of, there's a lot going on in this movie, but I think that – and I don't know if it's that I've, I've been in two classes or I've done two things where I've, like, studied uh, William Goldman's script for this film – one of them being the screenwriting class that I took, that I just took in college. The other being Aaron Sorkin's master class. Both of which, interestingly, study the same scene, uh, in different ways. Um. The opening scene of the film, Butch Cassidy is walking around a bank, and he looks around and he says to the guard guarding the bank, and he says, uh, "It's a beautiful bank," or, or "What happened to the old one? It was so beautiful." and the guard responds that people kept robbing it and he said oh it was a small price to pay for beauty and uh interestingly the two courses that i took that reference this uh, my class at school the textbook noted that uh, the character description for butch is just absolutely fantastic in a single paragraph you know everything that you need to know about him which is incredibly difficult uh i think zach will attest to this hopefully maybe i'm just the only one but it is really really difficult sometimes when writing a script to just nail your character in oh absolutely in one go and so what what goldman does is he just brilliantly nails like Okay, here's the character, and here's how he views himself and how he views the world in, like, three sentences and kills it. Aaron Sorkin comes in and then talks about that same scene as introducing the theme of the entire film as people kind of holding on to the past. Uh, and I think it's it's all brilliant. Uh, William Goldman's a good writer. I don't know. What else what else do you have to say to that, Tag?
1: No, that's a good way. That's a good... Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Um, one other thing that I like, um, is the stark comparison between Butch Cassidy's introduction and the Sundance Kid's introduction, because Butch Cassidy is a very lighthearted, um, oh, I'm just going to joke about it. It's not that serious. He doesn't strike
0: you as someone who'd be out robbing banks and trains and such.
1: Right, and then you have the immediate contrast of the Sundance Kid, who is playing cards, <laughs> and is the fastest, most accurate gun in the West, and these two are together. <laughs> what? How? Do, how does that work? Like, how? Do, how does this happy-go-lucky, um, almost innocent, bank and train robber? how how does he get along so well with this more serious um more conventional robber
0: and and what's interesting to me about that is how that dynamic is portrayed in other ways throughout the film as well like there's the obvious like Sundance is very quiet uh Butch is not Butch smiles Sundance doesn't Butch is ready to go Sundance isn't like that kind of thing but then it's also in several of the things they do the thing that's coming to mind right now is the way that they treat women uh, specifically where it's almost kind of how you wouldn't expect it in that Sundance has a girlfriend who he goes home to after every job and kind of has a life with and then butches out at brothels doing who knows what and, and I, I find that that dynamic very interesting, and it just more contrast between the two characters.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of really well choreographed contrast um, when they're uh, when they're backed up against the cliff by the posse, and uh, Butch is this lighthearted guy, and Sundance is the serious the one you'd be you'd assume would be the bravest of the two um and butch suggests they jump and sundance is like no absolutely not i will not absolutely not i'll go down fighting before i jump off this cliff into water Mm -hmm. and so that's cool contrast because you see this stoic suddenly go like no 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 um not gonna happen because he can't swim um which also comes back later.
0: What's interesting or cool, I don't I don't know. I I keep using the word interesting. I should probably use another word <laughs> uh, to describe fascinating. Fascinating maybe. Uh, one of the things that I liked uh, about or it, see it, I like the word interesting cuz it I can communicate it, I thought that it was th- it was there and I'm recognizing it without t- saying that I liked it. Uh, Because I don't know how I feel about this. Anyway, one of the aspects of the film is how the dialogue is delivered versus how it's written. Um, I feel like in some movies you can tell this dialogue was not written to be delivered this way, but it was delivered this way. Uh, A film that comes to mind is The Trouble with Harry, uh, which is an Alfred Hitchcock film starring Shirley MacLaine. And it is written to be a screwball comedy. It, it is a screwball comedy. But it's Alfred Hitchcock, so he directs it like a Hitchcock film. So it's this quiet, suspenseful thing. But the dialogue is, you can tell the dialogue is kind of meant to be funny and quick and delivered in a different way. And I felt that kind of in this film. Um, not in a bad way. But it felt, and this feels more like a directing thing to me where the writing is kind of meant to be delivered quick. William Goldman writes kind of quippy dialogue. It's why I think Aaron Sorkin is head over heels for William Goldman because he has he owes this huge debt to him in that in that regard. And but he, he he's doing this thing and it's it's very quippy and Princess Bride is very quippy. Uh but Paul Newman and Robert Redford, who are fantastic actors, they're wonderful. And they do great in this film. And I want to state very clearly, I am not saying that Paul Newman and Robert Redford are bad actors. But they do, the, they're they directed slower than the script is paced, which I think is interesting.
1: Yeah, it would, it would definitely be a very different movie if it was directed by Rob Reiner like The Princess Bride was. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would definitely feel even more like The Princess Bride if it had been directed by Rob Reiner, cause it would have been fun. It would have been, uh, you faster, uh, quippier, um, cut people off as they're talking a little bit sometimes, um, instead of, but it might've lost, it probably would have lost the classic Western feel. Oh, definitely. Because definitely. of how slow it is.
0: Definitely. I think one of the reasons it succeeds as a film is that kind of slow slower paced direction in a more western style that allows you to take in the vistas of what's happening which uh while we're talking about pacing that brings me to one of there were two parts of this film that i really really loved and that was the writing and then this which is the editing
1: it definitely fit the era and the genre
0: So this movie comes at an interesting place in film history where, so it's 1969. So Martin Scorsese makes his first movie in 1969. Uh, George Lucas makes his first movie right around this time as well. I don't remember what year THX 1138 comes out, but roughly around this time. A lot of Francis Ford Coppola is about to start, making movies coppola coppola francis ford coppola
1: i've only heard it coppola well but there are two p's
0: there are two p's in however you say it so (laughs) francis ford coppola is about to come out with his movies where he comes into the 70s and basically makes at least two of the greatest movies that are like in our canon which are The godfather and apocalypse now for those keeping track at home uh so he comes in and makes both of those movies so everything is kind of shifting and the kind of pivot point is a couple years before 1969 with bonnie and clyde and the graduate which if i remember correctly both come out in 1967 So both of those movies kind of represented this shift in where Hollywood was going and how it was changing and more youthful, more uh, violent, more sex, more, um, you know, kind of going against the rules of the studio system a little bit, uh, self-financing in the case of Bonnie and Clyde. So very, very different uh, in all of that. And this movie, I think, is very representative of that, that kind of shift that's happening. And people will kind of look back at it and point to it as a, one of those movies as part of that shift. There's your little bit of film history <laughs> for today.
1: In a VFX class uh, I took at school, we looked at editing, um, just straight up editing, not even spe- not even specifically VFX for a short time. Um, and Bonnie and Clyde was the talking point in that section.
0: Yeah, it represented this change from a very straightforward kind of editing. Um, obviously, cross-cutting, where we're cutting between two scenes that are happening at the same time in different places, that existed for a long time before, and that was a very at the time when it started very experimental type of editing. Uh, But now that once you get into like the 1960s, specifically Bonnie and Clyde, it shifts from being this very straightforward editing to being a little bit more how you feel, how it makes you feel, um, and getting the impression of something happening. And that kind of happens through these quick cuts. that that take place that give you the impression of what's happening w- rather than like what's actually happening. And that goes back to actually something we will probably talk about later in this podcast right here uh where we talk about montage and how Alfred Hitchcock would define montage which is more it's when we think of montages now we think fast music and like quick cuts and like showing a passage of time, but it can also just mean series of quick cuts um and they they give you this kind of impression of what's happening without necessarily showing you every single thing that's happening and that happens a lot in uh butch cassidy and the sundance kid a lot of film history and a little bit of film theory there yeah uh so something interesting to jump back to the screenplay we've we've talked about this before um but it's structured very interestingly uh Mm -hmm. it's not it doesn't feel like a normal film Um, and I I think uh, Goldman said something about that,
1: right? So in the writer's commentary, Goldman describes, uh, the, the, the break into the third act as being when Butch, Sundance, and Etta arrive in Bolivia, which is roughly about a third, uh, a third of the way from the end, so two thirds into the movie. Um, which is interesting to me because conventional three act structure is not even thirds like that. Um, conventional three act structure is first act, act one, uh, act two is about half the movie, and then act three.
0: So when you say act, what do you what do you mean when you talk about a three act structure, what is that?
1: So when I use the word act, it is a major change in the area of the story um, so like act one in the in what I would describe as the conventional three act structure. Act one is the setup up into the big thing that happens often called the inciting incident um and then act two is there's usually part there's usually two parts there's the first half of act two which is the beginning of the adventure um up into the halfway point and uh there's a lot, your B story will gen- generally be in there if there's a B story, um, and that'll continue a lot of rises and falls up until the end of Act 2, which starts Act 3, which is the, ex- the, the big excitement and then the end. Um, the, in other terms, you have Act 1 is uh, the normal, Act 2 is the journey and then act three is the new normal
0: so what's interesting about because you said act two is normally half the film but goldman kind of describes this film as shifting into act three earlier than most people would so what it brings us to is kind of this discussion of what an act is and this is going to be very much like shop talk up for a second here, I think, but an act—different pe- people define what an act is differently—and it sounds like what Goldman's doing here is defining an act differently, where most of us would describe it as falling on a certain story shift. So uh, we we would describe it as happening—you know—when this happens, then we shift into another act but goldman kind of takes it and says well no it's kind of when the story when we change locations when there's a major story shift or a time shift or something like that so a lot of times y- you hear acts in a uh, two act play like a like a musical and often there is in that in the intermission when we go into act 2 there is a major location change or there is a major time jump or something like that but it can also just mean the story shifts and something happens goldman here is kind of referring to the jump in act 3 which he says happens when they go to bolivia right yeah so he describes that as the the kind of the beginning of the third act but we we've talked about this before uh the third act really if you're if you're following a conventional story structure hero's journey thing really kind of begins in the uh towards the end of what he calls the third act which is where uh these characters kind of begin a shootout and it represents this moment of character change for butch who has to shoot a man for the first time i feel like we're we're on the same page with that, yeah. Kind of, oh, yeah. yes,
1: yeah. I think I see that as as a. I see that more as the beginning of Act Three. Mm-hmm. Um, either either that scene or like right after that scene, right around that scene is what I would describe as the beginning of Act Three.
0: Yeah, it's interesting because rarely when I'm watching a movie do I feel, am I am I watching it and I think, oh, this is the next act all right, we're in the next act. You know, I might, in the middle of the movie, be like, okay, that was the inciting incident, or, oh, okay, here's where we are now. But rarely does it happen that I'm watching a film and I think, here it is. Here is this moment. This is what is happening. This is the technical term for it. And I got that when watching this movie at that point where I was like, oh, act three. There we go. There it is. And so it's interesting to me that Goldman is like, no, all around this is just a this is a good film. Um Yeah. Now that said, do you want to you want to talk about what we didn't like as much in this film?
1: Yeah, so there are two scenes that as as people not born and alive in the 60s um when these movies were originally coming out, um, there are two scenes that stick out to us as, I would say, as weird. I appreciate
0: Um, you acknowledging our biases here, because I definitely wouldn't have done that and would have just jumped into blasting these scenes.
1: I'm all about defining (laughs) cultural differences. (laughs) Um. Yeah. So, like, um, there are two, scenes. two oh, scenes. There, there are two scenes. Yeah. One is Butch Cassidy riding a bicycle with at a place, as the song "Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head" plays, and that's it. And he's it's, just riding the bike with her. Solid that's two it. minutes. It's a. It's yep. Yeah, the full. The full song. And then. He falls off. A bull chases them away. It's... And then they get back.
0: It's a very and intricate scene. And Sundance says scene. he can
1: have... Yeah. And Sundance basically says he doesn't care about Etta. But that's after that scene. So, yep. that, so that's part actually... That. It gets... Yeah. I watched the director's commentary. And... um, uh, I think this part was actually the one of the composers or sound editors. Um, It wasn't George Roy Hill, but somebody involved in that area of it was talking. Um, they, They mentioned that the song was representative of kind of Butch Cassidy's unwavering optimism, even though everything's starting to or has already hit the fan because the lyrics are kind of dismal but it's set to an upbeat cheery tune which is a pretty good I mean that's a pretty good butch Cassidy as a song
0: <laughs> it makes it makes sense as an explanation yes i i still don't so Well, I'll let you, I'll let you finish. I'll let you.
1: So another thing that they said is they wanted to show, um, they wanted to build Butch and Etta's relationship. And so you see her having fun with Butch, um, and it's very lighthearted, like Butch. Um, and so I think they wanted to show that in a way it's weird it feels
0: it is a weird way out
1: of place um yeah it feels it's i would describe it as the uh they're doing choreography scene
0: from white christmas
1: they're doing choreography being from yeah um or the gotta dance from singing in the rain
0: i would i would disagree with you on that one Um, but our disagreement, our disagreement on that scene is well documented.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, because at the very least, there's a story reason for that scene, but that's, that's a, that's for another time. Uh, so uh, the thing about this raindrops keep falling on my head scene, uh, for me at least is that I don't feel like it fits tonally. In a very quiet, methodical, almost, movie... To suddenly hear raindrops keep falling on my head just feels out of place. Yeah. I don't feel like it is consistent with... uh, Butch Cassidy's character to be, like, riding around on a bicycle. Like, the showing up on a bicycle, I get like goofing off on a bicycle I don't I feel like that's like you're about to rob a train twice and you thought let me get a bicycle take a girl out on it and then just like goof off and, and that just yeah, doesn't I think, feel
1: I think even though he's as light-hearted as he is I feel like Butch Cassidy's age is what makes that feel weird yeah like if he were like if he were low 20s yeah it wouldn't be as weird but the fact that he's like 30s 40s Mm -hmm. that's that's what makes that feel off to me
0: he's a grown man and he's not the kind of guy who as a grown man is gonna just walk around you know riding around on this bicycle goofing off it just that isn't him uh the other scene that we both had uh both took umbrage with was the photo montage that happens um it is etta butch and sundance in new york kind of right before they jet off to bolivia to get away they they get to new york and rather than just have them go through New York or jump to them straight in Bolivia, we get a full, I don't even know how much, of them. It's about a minute and a half. About a minute and a half of just photos and recreations of famous photos of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid and all of this stuff before we get to them actually like in Bolivia. You watched the commentaries. Tell me, tell me about yeah,
1: this. There was very little on this one. Um, basically, what they talked about is um, uh, William Goldman mentioned that George Roy Hill knew that for that sequence he wanted Scott Joplin playing in the background, and that there was a picture, an actual picture of. Butch Sundance and Edda that they recreated for it. That's about all I got from the the commentaries. That's about all that they mentioned.
0: Yeah, and again here the music feels off. It doesn't feel quite right. And again, the uh, it it just it both scenes slow down the film so much where it feels like, okay, we're moving, we're moving, we're moving, and then suddenly we're going to stop for two minutes and watch Butch on a Bike and listen to raindrops keep falling on my head, and then we're going, we're going, we're going, and it's especially, for me especially, the, uh, the photo montage, it feels like we're going to Bolivia, like we're finally getting everything we want, which means either the movie's about to end because they're gonna get everything they want and we're gonna end. Or the movie's really about to go downhill because they're gonna get everything they want and then it's gonna all fall apart. Which ultimately is what happens. So my my issue with that is do we need to stop? Do we do we need that? And obviously it's weird to ask a question of that of a movie that is fifty years old, but
1: And that we've already God on and on singing its praises. Yes, because it
0: is great. It despite about four minutes that confused me greatly, I think yeah. this movie is great.
1: And I think I think honestly those parts might be in there as just exhales.
0: Yeah, I can um, I can because see that.
1: the entire story is very constantly driving um like once it starts it's moving it's they're going to the old hideout where butch gets in a fight they're going to rob the train they're robbing the train again they're running from the posse and then raindrops keep falling on my head and then they're robbing some more stuff and and they're eventually the posse is catching up with them and then New York. So it's almost like it's also, they're also both positioned at what I would describe as the act breaks using, using Goldman's definition of act three, the act breaks.
0: Yeah. I mean, that, that does make sense. Uh, yeah. I think that, especially if you're trying to find a structure for the film, those give you very clear delineations of here is the film here's the structure of the film yeah i agree i think that i think that that's a those are good explanations for it that doesn't mean i like it
1: right yeah it still it still feels very tonally and off it, and different and it it's a drastic change of pace that is a little whiplashy
0: and, and I think the hard part is, is it feels like it's trying to balance. And th- this was kind of my issue with Bonnie and Clyde um, as well, where it kind of feels like it's trying to balance wanting to be relevant, wanting to be culturally relevant and wanting to be true to the time period. So like The Graduate, I mean, I'm just gonna, trying to keep these three films kind of in connection because I feel like they are. I feel like they are in some way the graduate has a simon and garfunkel soundtrack which first of all means that the soundtrack is fantastic yeah but it it culturally fits in that time you know it's about someone in the 60s right it the film takes place in the 60s so having a simon and garfunkel soundtrack makes sense however this and and we do it now. I don't want to act like this is a purely 60s thing. It's. I know it's only because we're looking back at it 50 years that it feels weird. Like, someone in, like, 50 years is going to look at the Great Gatsby that had a rap soundtrack and be like, why? And then they're going to say, Leonardo DiCaprio isn't even that great of an actor. And now someone's going to shoot me for saying it. But that, that's <laughs> someone in the future. Someone in the future. <laughs> where was I? I totally, oh, uh, looking back, uh, the soundtrack, yeah. but it feels like it it's trying to hold this tension of wanting to bring in modern elements while also being, uh, true to the story. And for me here, it falls flat. It falls flat in both those, those regards. And to be fair, so did Bonnie and Clyde. That was, that was part of my issue. Bonnie and Clyde is that it, it felt like it was trying to balance these things and it didn't do didn't do very well at it. So I think that wraps us up on our discussion of Dutch yep. Casting and the Sundance Kid. Uh I would rewatch it again.
1: Oh, I I will. I I I want to I want to specify that I did not watch the entire writer's commentary or director's commentary. I only went and watched the two scenes that had us confused. I know that's shameful. <laughs> I will watch them once I actually have free time. Well maybe once we're out of the out of the quarantine. <laughs>
0: um how many how many stars out of five?
1: I would say this is a four point five
0: solid i i'm gonna give it i give it a four out of five um i think it's a great film uh but for me i feel almost like a judge on dancing with the stars like or something like we do this yeah it's a it would have been a 10 but for me for me this this uh no i think that uh the yeah i think that the um the two scenes kind of bring it down a full star for me now this is normally the part of the show where we would give our recommendations and then sign off. But this is a special episode, and now we're going to talk about another movie.
1: Hold on to your horses! I said that in the most least <laughs> exciting, wow, in the least exciting way possible.
0: <laughs> Zach is not excited about our next movie, which is one of my favorite movies. Uh, at least a, one of my a, a movie by one of my favorite directors, uh, Alfred Hitchcock. We're talking about Psycho.
1: I want to point out that I'm not not excited. I am excited. I just I don't know. <laughs> I good. I I don't I I don't know why I don't know. I'm just I'm just <laughs> making sounds right now.
0: Good. You're you're making sounds. Good, bud. Uh, cool. So Psycho is a 1960 film. We're staying in the 60s because we can only take like one decade at a time here on rewatch. So uh, it's a movie from the sixties. It stars Anthony Perkins and Vera miles and Janet Lee, uh, along with several other people. But those are, those are your big names It's directed by Alfred Hitchcock. It's iconic. It's black and white. Um, The shower scene. I, I don't really know how to like introduce this movie other than just like it's Alfred Hitchcock. It's psycho.
1: It's the movie where the girl gets stabbed in the shower, yep. and it's in a motel.
0: There you go, uh, and that, I feel like that's all about that's about all you need for this movie. Yeah, um,
1: except that sets you up to where I was when I watched it.
0: Yes, which is something I want to talk about. So, uh, Zach, Zach, and I are both on Letterboxd, Which, if you're not on Letterboxd and you like movies, you should be uh and if you are on letterboxd you should be following me and Zach uh, cuz you should uh and so before we before we start on uh what we liked what we didn't first impressions all that stuff it, would you be okay if i just read your your letterboxd review yeah okay cuz this might serve as your first impressions if you have anything to add to this but before before we really get into um, all of our thoughts, I want to read your letterbox review because I think it's amazing. Uh, I thought I had basically seen Psycho, despite never actually sitting down to watch it. I was wrong. Turns out there's an entire second half that I had no idea about. Do you have anything to add to that as part of your first impressions?
1: I mean, I could leave it there, but I I mean, really there's so much more to the movie than I think most people think most people because like when I was going into it I was like oh this is the movie where the girl goes to the motel the guy stabs the girl in the motel end of movie I didn't know that only ha- that happened only halfway through the movie oh it's and less so when than that happened, through. I was like oh this is we're 40 minutes in yeah now
0: what so so something that I find really fun about this movie is that just like a fun again, movie history lots of movie history on on the podcast today. Uh one of my favorite kind of movie history tidbits is that there were no there's a policy with Psycho that there were no late admittance. There was no late admittance to the movie. There was, uh, I mean, like that was the marketing ploy. So on the Blu-ray copy that I have, there is like a, there you can, there's like a press kit from the '60s, from 1960, about the film, and one of the like things in the in the in the press kit is that you you no one was allowed into the theater. It was theater policy. You had voice recordings of Hitchcock that were playing in the lobby, telling everyone that you couldn't get in. There were lines. And part of that is obviously a marketing ploy, because if you can get a long line of people with a sign that says, these people are here to see Psycho, everyone's talking about Psycho. No one thought that this movie was going to make its money back. It was made for very, very little money. That's actually why it's in black and white, is Hitchcock funded it and they needed cheap film stock. So that the black and white was cheap at the time it was cheaper than color uh but anyway so there was no late admittance in the film and ostensibly it was because you should enjoy this film as from start to finish you have to enjoy the film start to finish the reality was janet lee who was like the cell of this movie she's on every poster in she's on every poster and not only is she on every poster she's on every poster in a bra like that she is the pull of this movie she's in every trailer and she's in every trailer everything has her face on it and she's killed 20 minutes into the movie and she's just gone and Hitchcock didn't want people paying to see Janet Lee showing up late and then not seeing Janet Lee and begging for their money back because they were upset about the movie and then he would lose a bunch of money I love Hitchcock uh, for a lot of reasons, and that's one of them. Um, as problematic of a person as he might have been, uh, definitely a fascinating character. So, though, I mean, th- I feel like that goes to say that my first impressions of the film were, yeah, it's just as good as it was the first time, so.
1: Yeah, I enjoyed it.
0: So tell me, tell me what you liked.
1: I liked that... it was it, even though i knew who did it somehow things have worked out my entire life with the movie having existed for let's see 60 years that 60-ish that years? is the math i Still hadn't actually seen it. Like even though I knew all of the references, like oh, I know that she screams while she's getting stabbed in the shower to the, uh, to the super high pitched strings. I knew the chocolate going down the drain. I knew uh, Norman spying on her. I knew I knew the birds in with in that which foreshadowing to the next Alfred Hitchcock movie. Um, I knew that is. Mom, I knew there was something with his mom. I didn't exactly know all that. Um I knew a lot of it, but there was still the second half that I was like, "Oh, I had no idea this was here." So I I appreciated that that I was still able to be surprised. Honestly, just by the fact that there was more content.
0: Yeah, and I think that was done that was done purposefully in the original marketing of the film, obvi- like what I was just talking about, because Hitchcock didn't want anyone knowing what was happening. He didn't want anyone to kind of know the twists, of uh, the twists in terms of kind of where the movie was going to go. And I, I think that that is also just a testament to the kind of filmmaker that uh, that Hitchcock was in that you can watch his movies over and over again and still kind of feel tense and feel that suspense of what's happening. Um, I, think, I think this movie is a prime example of that uh, in that even watching it again, I'm like knowing what's going to happen and somehow like knowing what's going to happen makes it worse. And there's like this intensity that grows of like I know when that, she, I know when she goes in that house, eventually uh, she's going to go down to the basement and then she's going to find the mom. But it, ha- it takes so long to find it uh, and for her to get down there. And I, I just, I think that that is uh, so brilliant. Um,
1: One thing I really camera. liked was the practical on screen way of making the light more dramatic. When she sees the mom, because mm-hmm. she sees the mom, freaks out, bumps the light, so the light starts swinging, which is casting crazy shadows all over, which also makes it a, a lot trickier for cutting. But it all it makes it so much more dramatic, both, on the static shot of the skeleton when, Mrs. Norman Bates is rushing her.
0: And you make the, you say that about cutting, um, making it more difficult to cut because of the um, swinging light, but it almost intensifies the scene that the light doesn't necessarily match in every cut, because it's right. everything is going so crazy. And again, it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where it's talking about there's this idea that we're editing not necessarily just for what's happening but for how it feels and we're editing this montage to, to how it feels which i think segues nicely into the montage of all montages which is the shower scene um from the minute that the curtain opens to the minute that she's like on the floor at, that is i think it's safe to say that's kind of like a gold standard for a lot of editors when like, they're looking back mm-hmm. at the things that they've done uh, or the things that they want to emulate, I should say. I think that, and that scene does such a good job at showing you, it, it feels, you feel the attack. But like the sound doesn't match up with what uh, what is actually shown of her mouth. And I think the biggest thing is you never see a knife enter her. Right. You never once see her get stabbed. You you see a knife go towards her, you see blood on the ground, but you never see her get stabbed. Mm-hmm. Which is just brilliant filmmaking. Like I oh man, I cannot express how great that is because it it makes on on multiple levels. On the one level, it's just Cool, because you've made an entire group of people think something has happened when you never actually showed them that it happened. But then on top of that, you you have to engage your audience a little bit more. So I could show someone getting stabbed in a long shot. In a wide shot, I could see them get stabbed. Or I could make the audience think that they got stabbed. And now the audience is thinking, wait, did the knife go, did it, what, what, and And they're they're on the edge of their seat a little bit more um and I mm-hmm. think you know it's Hitchcock that's what he does is he keeps you on the edge yeah. of your seat um and I think that that scene more than probably any um in Hitchcock's repertoire as well as many many other filmmakers repertoires uh it it is great uh you mentioned the score there as well, that iconic violin stuff that happens there uh i want to talk for a second about bernard herman who did the score his first film that he ever scored was citizen kane and the last film that he ever scored was taxi driver so I mean, I don't even know what to what to do with that. Other, I mean, I just said, I said Citizen Kane and Taxi Driver, and we're talking about Psycho. So this man did all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the best scores of all time. Uh, Bernard Herrmann, I mean, obviously, I, I kind of gave his resume a little bit there. Basically, uh, you know how, like, you've probably heard John Williams scores a couple of times. If you've seen Star Wars or Indiana Jones or Superman or any other Spielberg movie that exists, you have heard a John Williams score? Bernard, John Williams owes Bernard Herman. Uh as far as, like as far as uh movie composers go. And man, I mean it's just the score in this film was great. Uh, the cinematography as well.
1: Mm-hmm. There is something that that frustrates me a little bit about the beginning of the movie. I get that this was the 60s. Cameras were big. Cameras were difficult to move. That's some really unsteady panning right (laughs) off the bat. Like, I'd get, I'd get, I'd get points off if I did something with that bad panning in a class at school. And like, like, like if I, I, I would, I've done, I've done some, uh, some volunteer pre-screening with a film festival and I, I would, I would keep, I would make note of that. It might not take points off, but I would make note of that if I saw that in something now. But no, it's Hitchcock.
0: Yeah, you'll say, but your name isn't Alfred Hitchcock. And you didn't you didn't make at least 15 classic movies in your life. So
1: I know. That's just, <laughs> it's just something I noticed.
0: And I say 15, I'm not even necessarily thinking about a certain 15. Um, I think that you just pick a cross section of his career and you've got 15, like at any point. Mm-hmm. um
1: <laughs> just just something i noticed
0: yeah uh other than that i think that the cinematography in this is fantastic
1: oh absolutely
0: yeah hitchcock again famous for how he moves the camera how he puts the audience in the point of view of the characters i mean just famous for that and this movie is no different this movie is an example of that in a lot of ways uh i Man, he just he kills it in this movie as well. So Pun I looked intended. it up.
1: There is there is one shot that uh it is less than half a sec it is less than a second long where the camera it's a it's the camera is looking it's a top uh, bottom up I guess of the shower head. So the shower head is right over the camera. Mm-hmm shooting around it he built an oversized shower head for that one shot and used less than a second of it granted i've that's happened on our stuff before like i'm sure that's happened on one of your sets i'm sure it's it's happened on plenty of mine it happened on the one we just did
0: Mm -hmm. You, you you do the setup because you you want that shot and then it's in there for half a second but Dang it, you got that shot.
1: Or something else happens that affects the timing, and so you have to trim it or mm. cut it entirely or reframe mm-hmm. it.
0: Yeah. I I think that in conjunction with the cinematography, the what's really cool about this film is the editing in that there are really, really slow shots, really, really long, really, really wide, where lots of things are happening. And then there are sequences where the it's cutting like crazy and you can't necessarily take in every th- single thing that's happening. Going back to the montage where you, you think that she is getting stabbed. Um, but you know, there are also other things where, you know, he plays with the foreground, midground, background a lot where you can see, see things that are happening before they happen. Um, and, you know, see things coming that a character can't or, you know, the camera moving up and down the stairs with the private uh, detective is he's going up and down. I think that that's, that's so brilliant. I could I could go on and on about Alfred Hitchcock and how much I love him. I, I do want to talk a little bit about uh, kind of the meta narrative of this film because it is – there's a pretty famous mer- meta narrative of this film in that – broke a lot of rules uh at the time uh not to get into too much technical film history uh but there was a different kind of moral police happening at the time uh so now we have the motion picture association of america people give them movies and they say r pg PG 13 g at the time there was a different group uh and they had a very different code um a published list of things that they said couldn't happen in a in a movie and hitchcock said screw you and did them all well not not all of them there there are several (laughs) things he didn't do um uh, but, uh, one of them, one of the things that he couldn't do, or he was told he couldn't do was, uh, show a toilet flushing on screen. And he said, "I, no, I'm going to do it. And he did it. Uh,
1: that actually was by, uh, that was the writer who wanted to do that. Yeah. Uh. The writer said he wanted that, and Hitchcock said, if you can justify it, I'll do it.
0: And and the only way they got away with it was the fact that she, she was flushing uh, pieces of paper, not uh, human excrement. Uh, as you might imagine, the shower scene also ruffled many a feather of a bunch of old white men. So, yeah, this movie caused some problems. Interestingly, it's rated R now after the Motion Picture Association of America reassessed the film. Uh, I didn't expect that. Uh, There's not a lot of... Yeah. There's not a lot of objectionable content in this movie.
1: Yeah. I could see... R seems a bit extreme. I could see PG-13. Definitely, definitely. It'd be stretching it to put it pg but yeah. it, I think, I think it sits a pretty comfortable PG thirteen in my book.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, is there anything, is there anything about this film that bothered you, other than obviously the toilet flushing? Um, is there anything about the film that you were like, yeah, kind of wish that hadn't happened?
1: The toilet flushing didn't bother me.
0: It was a, it was a joke. Like... Oh, oh, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, I can't really think of anything um i think i think no i think i can't think of anything um i did want to say something that i especially did like oh yeah yeah. Sorry. i knew I... the whole no no you're uh i knew i knew the whole chocolate syrup as the blood mm-hmm. thing um i didn't i hadn't actually seen it to know how good it looked and i know that's why he used it instead of fake blood because it looks better for the black and white specifically but i was i always imagined it in my mind like somebody squirting chocolate syrup into a drain mm. but the fact that it was uh diluted with the water made it it looks so good
0: oh yeah it looks fantastic
1: um, because it it's 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 a lot more subtle than i thought it was going to be
0: yeah um, i'll say one more thing that i especially did like then which is the ending of the film? Uh how many how many Alfred Hitchcock movies have you seen? Three. Okay. Wh- which ones have you seen?
1: I've seen. I saw The Birds several years ago. Um, I saw a Rear Window a couple months ago, and then I just saw and then this.
0: Yeah. So, one of the things that while I love Hitchcock, and he 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 kind of holds me for two hours. I then can't stand is how he finishes films a lot of the time a lot of times his movies just kind of end like it, it's just like something happens and then they're just like over and it's like oh oh cool and then you just kind of move on uh, north by northwest does that i don't know why i paused there but it does rear window which is one of my favorite movies of all time kind of does that uh saboteur does that which is one that i recently saw vertigo definitely does that um where just it's like you have this intense movie for two hours and then it's just over just kind of done and you're kind of like oh cool (laughs) but uh i this film being psycho ends very and it has a little bit more of a closure. It has a moment of, this is the end of the story. Everything is done. Mm-hmm. Um,
1: until Psycho Two and Psycho Three, which I found out today exist.
0: Oh yes, they do. And Anthony Perkins came back. That's the it's the craziest thing is he came mm-hmm. back and
1: he directed Psycho Three. What a man. Which means it was his idea.
0: <laughs> Indeed. Uh, but it, but this movie does have kind of a closure and it, you know, yeah, it, 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 it's kind of weird that it ends with like them pulling the car out. But like, other than that, it's like, there's a moment of closure in this film that you don't get in a lot of, uh, other Hitchcock films. So I appreciated that it's, it's there in this one.
1: The actress who plays Lila Crane also comes back for Psycho (laughs) 2. Of course. But not Psycho 3. Not Psycho
0: 3. Good, good. I don't know if she dies in Psycho 2 or if she was just over it for Psycho 3, but... I will say there's also the 1990s uh, Gus Van Sant shot-for-shot remake.
1: With Vince Vaughn?
0: With With Vince Vaughn. Um, just so we're clear abundantly, we have not seen that. I don't think we intend to, and that is most definitely not what we're talking about.
1: Wait, Vince Vaughn wasn't Norman Bates and Norman <laughs> you watched? Did I watch the wrong movie, Seth?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, you did. Um, I just, I felt like the, I felt like we couldn't talk for a long time about Psycho and not acknowledge that that film does exist and it, it is well, out Vince there in the world. Vince Vaughn. That was that was his I'm a serious actor phase. Um, every every comedic actor seems to have a phase where they they have to prove to the world that they're a serious actor. Uh, some of them do well, most of them do not. So that was that was Ben. Sometimes
1: bond. you're Jim Carrey, and you're a better serious actor than you are a comedic actor.
0: Yeah. Sometimes you're Jim Carrey and you do The Truman Show, and The Majestic. Other times you're Vince Vaughn and you do a shot-for-shot shot remake of Psycho with Gus Van Sant, who also directed Goodwill Hunting. So like, he's not a bad director, but hit it. it they used the same script. I don't know if you knew that, for the for the remake they used they used the same script. Uh.
1: I mean that's that's cool in concept. Oh yeah. But it's but not the way it happened. Nope. Not with Vince Vaughn. Nope. As Norman Bates. Not nope. without you you have to get you have to get somebody with clout to redo it, but nobody with clout would redo that.
0: Nope. Nope. So you can't you can't really think of anything that you would have disliked in the film.
1: I mean, I wish Norman had been better at lying to the cop, but I can't, I can't criticize consistent, like consistent character choice. Like he's he's been on his own for 10 years. He's not going to be good with people. He's not going to be good at lying to the police.
0: Yeah, I get that. I get that.
1: Or even if he's good, he's not going to be perfect at it.
0: Mm hmm. Mm hmm.
1: Purely from a social skills point of view.
0: Yeah, yeah, I guess I guess I can get behind that. Uh, I, I, I don't think it's necessarily inconsistent. Um, if
1: oh, I don't think I don't think it's inconsistent.
0: Yeah, mainly mainly because you're looking at a guy who killed his mother and her lover, and then has probably been. Consistently lying to every person who happens to stop at the motel and all the people in town who occasionally call to like check in. Um, because there are people, you know, the sheriff knows him, like people know him. Uh, so well, I think, and, that...
1: uh, and he killed two other girls, before. yeah.
0: So I think, I think that's probably pretty consistent. Um,
1: yeah, I, I wasn't saying that it was inconsistent, I'm saying he, I wish he hadn't, but I get. He did because that's Norman.
0: Yeah. I uh, The the only thing that I didn't necessarily care for this time around, I, I got it the first time around, I, I didn't care for it as much this time, was the psychoanalyst who kind of explains everything about who Norman Bates is. Um, I get why it's there. Interesting. It kind of reminded me of uh, Daniel Craig's, donut hole monologue from knives out <laughs> in a weird retroactive sense,
1: mm-hmm. uh,
0: significantly less funny. Yeah. Um, but all that to say, it, it it was interesting in that it kind of felt like not, not Hitchcock defending Norman Bates, but he has to like explain, all of the uh, intricacies of what was happening rather than just dude was crazy. And then he put on a dress and then he killed people <laughs> like, cause it, cause you kind of get, okay, he's pretending to be his mother. Like you get that. Um, and you kind of make that connection, but it's like, uh, do, do I need more me personally? I didn't, but maybe some people did
1: i do i do like that it's that conversation where it's revealed that norman killed his mom and her lover that it wasn't murder suicide
0: yes i do think that needed to be be revealed um and i think that that...
1: shows more intent on him
0: yeah definitely definitely uh yeah and that's that's obviously a very like nitpicky thing, and I get why it's there um i might have I might have done something different um uh I think you know maybe instead it would have been interesting to see the actual interrogation um but at the same time, I don't know if that takes away too much of the mystery of the character
1: so i just I just thought of the one thing that I do wish had been different mm-hmm. I wish Anthony Perkins voiced the mom. Yeah, it I bothered that way would... that they had another actress voice the mom mm-hmm. because that that's that to me is a cheating that does change. Like there, there's like there's there's like camera tricks, like movie magic and cheating that does work, but because it, it it's supposed to be the character having a conversation with himself, that can only happen with specific timing because you can't sp- say, like, you can't physically speak as two people at the same time. You have to, even if it's just split-second breaks and switches there is still that and it is possible to have a convincing two-person conversation as one person and i think i think hitchcock i think it would have been better if it had been anthony perkins I, i
0: i think there's kind of to play the devil's advocate advocate here you know then you kind of immediately know that it's
1: well it, he could have done a voice.
0: Yeah, that that, uh, that is true. I I and see. He did. I see
1: that. He, I I saw that he he removed the low end from Norman's voice after the murder when he was going the blood. My God, my God, the blood. So he could have even like played with the audio to mm-hmm. make it sound less like him and more like a woman. But I think it should have at least started as, in that scene, in that take, Anthony Perkins playing both.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I get that. Because totally then that.
1: then you have the diegetic audio, the diegetic story audio, like, in Rear Window. You have what's actually there making the sound. Granted the woman playing the mom was probably in the room i don't imagine it was added afterwards but you you have the actual you have the story telling its own story not
0: yeah, its and, actors. and that was probably uh assuming so something about the film is that hitchcock did not give anyone the full script before they filmed And so I would imagine that there was some of that going on there as well, where he didn't want people to get the wrong idea. He didn't want people to get ahead and kind of pick out what was happening. Uh,
1: and that makes sense.
0: And that makes sense. Uh, I know I have some friends who are actors and they disagree with a lot of Hitchcock's methods in that regard of not, uh, telling, telling actors what was coming. Uh, you know, obviously, there's the famous story of Tippy Hedren being locked in a room in the birds and just getting pelted with birds for, like, a full day. Uh, and so Hitchcock was not exactly known for his kindness to his actors. But um, nevertheless, he he made some good films, <laughs> despite being a little cruel. So, uh, out of... Out of five stars, what would you give this film? I'd give it a four. What what stops it from five for you?
1: It didn't really keep me in suspense as much. Um, and I don't know if that's a mixture of watching it in the day with lights on, with the window open, and already knowing some of it. Um, It... It was good, I think, it felt, um, it felt 60s acted a bit at times, if that makes any sense.
0: Definitely, definitely. So, Um, that kind of flat,
1: choppy, choppy, very formal.
0: So, four stars, four stars from you?
1: Four stars, yeah. Cool. And I'd say, I'd say generally it was more because of the 60s acting.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I give it five, uh, because I think for me, it did hold me in suspense. So would you, would you rewatch this one?
1: Probably. I don't think I'd rewatch it on my own, but if a group of people are just watching it, I would absolutely, I'd obviously join in.
0: I, I definitely will. Um, I've been trying for the entire time that I've been dating my fiance to, uh, get her to watch this movie. Um, And I have the rest of our lives to convince her to watch this movie. (laughs) I highly doubt that will happen, but, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna try it. Uh, so yeah, I will, I will, I will be rewatching this movie multiple times. Uh, definitely. All right. So that actually brings us to the actual end of our special, special double episode, uh, that... We're doing right now.
1: We made it. And we made if it. If you're listening to this, you made it. Thank you. Yes. Thank, thank you. For you. It, sitting through the whole, the whole twice as long yeah, of us it also
0: That also means that uh, if you're listening to this after a full week of technical difficulties, we finally were able to record a podcast. Yeah. All right. So, Zach, hit me with something that you watched in the last week or so that you would recommend to anyone especially now let yeah especially now that everyone's kind of in in quarantine they need something what do you what do you give them
1: so i've only been able to watch the first episode which frustrates me because the previous show created and directed by the director of this one i binged each season as it came out i am not okay with this is the name of the show it is amazing it is directed by Jonathan Twistle, which is a fantastic name, what a name for a fantastic creator for a fantastic show. It's funny, it's moving, even in the first episode, I already relate to a lot of the characters, um, a lot of their frustrations, and the people they hate, and the people they love, um, I'm really excited for, I'm really excited to just actually have time to watch stuff and be able to finish the show off um yeah i am not okay with this it's on netflix netflix original um i am okay with that show
0: (laughs) good uh my recommendation is indiana jones and the last crusade uh man what a great film uh it's just it's so good it's one of my favorites uh i watched it last night with some friends on netflix party uh, which is a browser extension you can get to watch stuff with friends during this time of being away from all your friends. Uh, so it was a great time. I, I loved it. Uh, cannot recommend that film enough. It is also on Netflix, so I highly recommend it. Uh, now, before you tell us what we're going to watch for next week, uh, I do want to. We're, we're already running long, uh, it's already a long episode uh so i want to give and i'm kind of springing this on you i did not tell you we were going to do this before uh but we've mentioned a couple of times this is our fourth episode so we've mentioned probably three times at least uh that we are we've been working on a film uh we have been uh working a lot on a film you especially have been working very tirelessly (laughs) we're very tiredly on this film Uh, so kind of, but we're, we're wrapping up. Give me, I want to hear like a little bit. I, obviously I know because I directed it. So I know where we're at, but I want to hear kind of from you. Where, where are we? What's happening? That kind of stuff.
1: So we just, we, we finished, finished it. Um, we, I exported the final, cut the final file a couple days ago and at this point we are still waiting on festivals we have submitted it to a couple festivals already some festivals aren't open yet or uh, submissions ended earlier this year and so we'll do it next year um, so we are still waiting on festivals submitting, them to, submitting it to that We were getting ready to do a private screening for our cast and crew and our amazing Indiegogo backers. Um, People who gave a certain amount of money, um, we said on it we would give a private screening. We were going to do that in person, but that's a bad idea right now, so we're going to do it online. And it's going to be awesome, and we're going to get to thank them just excessively... (laughs) um, over that live stream. And I'm, I'm excited for that aspect of it. I'm excited to be able to. Maybe not. Even face to face. But like to, to, to thank them audibly. Um, because it we could not have done it. Without all of their no. help. And not even just financial help. But encouragement and. Support. Some of them sent us props. That we didn't have to buy. It's. Mm-hmm. We've had fantastic support throughout this
0: entire process and and it really did turn out great um and i can say that because zach did such a lion's share of the work that (laughs) i can say that it did turn out great uh uh and we're really we're really proud of it and excited to show it and hopefully we'll be able to show it uh in a more public way soon we'll know kind of after we know what festivals we fingers crossed festivals that we get into uh and we'll be able to uh share it with the world soonish, uh says so exciting now uh now that we have that kind of little update, Zach, hit me with what we're watching next week.
1: Next week, we will be doing Zombieland. It's a drastic change in- in genre uh but it's hilarious if you like that kind of movie. And, uh, it's got Woody Harrelson, Jesse Eisenberg, um, Emma Stone and Abigail Breslin and Bill Murray.
0: We've been, we've been doing very, uh, serious dramas, um, for the most part. Gonna, so it feels, shake it up. feels like it's time to do something a little bit, <laughs> a little bit different. It's not going to scare me or make me, uh, Emotional, so I think this is probably a good one. <laughs> <laughs> well, cool, that's great. Uh, yeah. I'll see you. See you
1: next week. Yep.